So at this juncture of the retreat, I've been very much today with the appreciation for the uh, effort and application that everyone's been making, all of us, in our own ways, to contribute um, to the really fine quality of the holding space that allows us to do this work. Um, It's not the kind of work that we can really do at this subtlety and with this depth, usually under our own steam. Uh, Usually the momentum of our daily life doesn't allow that kind of space and, and it's so much more easy to just wander off into our own distractions. So it really is important that we have these spaces where we can come together and support each other. And I've been considering just, uh, you know, it's been delightful to taste some of the peaceful meditations and spaces, but also how, um, you know, what, you know, what everyone has uh, has been working with, which which isn't altogether easy, <laughs> necessarily. For some, you know, I'm, uh, I'm all very aware that uh, for some of you, you've sort of you've 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 made the journey from a weekend retreat into a month retreat in one short leap, which for me is phenomenal. Um, my first day retreat, I couldn't sit still for five minutes. I was bouncing off the walls and making escape plans. In fact, I did escape and got to the road and then <laughs> packed my bag and then felt so guilty. I went back and unpacked it all and stayed. But, you know, it's, this isn't easy to, you know, so to, to... And it isn't easy for those of, us, those of us that have been doing it for years. It's still challenging. Um, in its own way, it doesn't necessarily um, suddenly just go completely easy without any struggle, without any challenge. And then for others, some people working with really um, difficult bodily karma, really challenging bodily situations, sensation, feeling, tired, um, aches and pains, limitations and that that's difficult to to really come to terms with a a body that doesn't cooperate with how we'd like it to be or energy levels that aren't that aren't according to our our wish or getting headaches or stomach aches or things like this that uh, that we that we meet that we get uh, challenged by and uh, to be not to be distracted from that And then for some of us, not with our loved ones, leaving our home, um, being miles and miles away from the familiar spaces, different language even, um, all of this is challenging and heroic actually. So I I was today, this evening, thinking about how heroic, (laughs) I mean, we might think, when we reflect on our own process, we think, oh, I'm just a you know, a bit of a drip, really. <laughs> just not, you know, there's nothing particularly heroic about little old me. You know, I just moan, moan away to myself quietly in a corner. <laughs> you know, sort of going on and on and on about how it's all unfair and too difficult. But 
actually this way of awakening and just being human, just meeting the challenge of being embodied, being incarnated, being with doubts, being with with longings, being with desires, being with aversion, being with the uncertainty, the absolute profound uncertainty of life. We don't really know what's going to happen ever. You know, we don't know if our loved ones will always be with us. We don't know when death will come. So all of these things are difficult to be- to bear. And we have such sophisticated ways of distracting ourselves and denying some of these deeper realities that we constantly actually live with, which is understandable. And so in, in this kind of a retreat experience, we, we're choosing not to do that. We're choosing even in a beautiful environment like this, which is very supportive, beautiful, food, lovely people, lovely intentions, incredible mountain, you know, Dhamma reflections to think about and practice, teachings, it still is hard to bear the reality of our incarnation somehow. Um, it's a <clears throat> it's a, you know, when we I remember <clears throat> when I was a nun in the early years when I was a monastic as a monastic you kind of it's an odd life really it's <laughs> completely bizarre life uh, it doesn't really fit into any kind of normal model of living a life and uh, you sort of give up everything to this order and to this discipline and to this practice and uh, and you give up a lot of power of your own decisions and and you as you as you you know as the years go on at a certain point you start getting sent to different places you know to to teach or to go to different groups or get sent to schools and you know talk to school children if they invite you or university groups or buddhist groups or to prisons or to people that are dying or I suppose it's a bit like being a vicar, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about some of the odd circumstances that one would land up in. Sometimes you get sent to places that actually don't want you there, so somehow, you know, I, I remember once being sent to a, a circle meeting of gay vicars, blokes, who didn't want a nun, they wanted a, a monk to go, and this monk obviously didn't, he, wouldn't, he was like, for some reason he didn't want to go, I think he was a bit worried about what he was getting himself into, so he sent me. And, you know, I realised I turned up to this meeting with these guys, and I thought, God, they really don't want me here. <laughs> that was funny. Anyway, I don't know why, I've completely forgotten that, but I was thinking tonight about all the, the odd places, and I, I remember going to a group in London, we used to go to this group, we get a sort of lottery and say, well, it's your turn now to go into London to teach these two groups. There were two groups, and so you'd stay overnight, wander around London the whole day and wait for the next evening for the other group. So I'd done this. I'd gone down to London. I was with a novice, and we'd we taught one group, and I don't know, there's something about Buddhist groups in England that are a bit depressed. <laughs> I don't know what it is that... <laughs> So then, okay, we got through that one. It was okay. 
I walked all around London for hours trying to just sort of kill the time really for the, the next evening group. And we went to the next evening group and there was always this woman that would host us. And uh, that night for some reason she had a fit of pique and at the end of the meeting she says, I'm fed up with hosting these monastics, I'm not doing it tonight, someone else must do it. And she stormed off and no one else wanted to do it. And so. <laughs> So we sort of got turfed out, and I sort of thought, well, okay, what should we do now? It's like 10 o'clock at night in London, so kind of landed up at a Thai restaurant, knocked on the door and said, could you put us up for the night? <laughs> Come in and put us up and fed us the next day. But it's just, you know, it's just the sort of the oddness of that life. But one, one day I, I was sent to, um, to be with this, to an old, a, a home for old people. And we'll say, you've got to just go and, you know, there's this lady, she's suffering, you've got to go. And I don't even know if she really wanted me to be there either, but got sent off and dropped off by someone. And they said, okay, we'll pick you up in a few hours. And I was sitting, you know, went to this lady's room and um, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a long two hours. <laughs> because she was really depressed, you know, she was very aged, she was lonely. No one had come to visit her, her family had abandoned her, and it was just really quite dire. And there was nothing good on the horizon. There was no way I could cheer up and say, oh, you know, it's going to get better, because clearly it wasn't. You know, so I was sitting there, you know, and after like five minutes, it already seemed like an hour, thinking, oh, God, you know. And she was like complaining, really, about her life, and I was listening to it and listening. And I had this kind of moment, and it was almost like this veil lifted. And I just kind of had this moment of insight, and I, and I just felt very strongly this, this being isn't this old woman at all. She thinks she's this old woman in this body, but that's not who she is at all. You know, she's completely caught up in this story of pain and suffering and loneliness and abandonment. But I kind of saw her as this really incredibly heroic being that had was being confronted by this reality of aging and loss and and how painful it was and as soon as i could connect to that part of her i just started to feel this ama amazing quality of compassion I just felt this wonderful compassion for her for me for 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 all of us as human beings kind of caught in these limitations that we believe ourselves to be, you know, and then struggling with it, struggling, struggling, struggling. I mean, I couldn't quite say, look, you're not really who you think you are. <laughs> you're not really this old lady in this home and, you know, suffering like mad. You're this wonderful radiant spirit and you just kind of, you know, there's just a little bit of delusion going on here because I don't think she would have got it, but but I just made me feel really, really um, patient, just really compassionate, just listening. And, and as I was listening, I think she picked up something of the, you know, the sense that uh, that there was, you know, that that something was being heard at a deeper level. And, and you know, in the end, we passed the time quite nicely and talked a bit more about her life. And she cheered up a bit. You know, it wasn't the end of the whole suffering, but. But it was it was a shift for me, and it was a you know something that I'd forgotten actually. And then when I was thinking tonight and contemplating speaking, I was reminded because I've been thinking about everyone on the retreat and all of us and 
what we face and what we're with. And, and in some ways, it's nothing dramatic. You know, none of us are in a dramatic and extreme situation. We're actually all pretty much okay. But it's just this the thing of, of bearing with the reality. The, and, and, and to be patient. Remember, um, when I was, you know, to, to this, this line that I um, spoke earlier in the retreat, Magahatakilesawa Pati Upati Tammatang, the path, uh, the activity breaks up that which obstructs, and the fruit arises according to its own nature, according to the Dhamma. Um, that a lot of what we're with is going to ripen according to its own time, that we're just really you know, remembering that all we're doing is just this path activity, moments of gathering, moments of investigation, moments of inquiry, moments of kindness, and we let the rest unfold. It's a hard thing to remember because we have this often unconscious agenda that it all should kind of quicken or do more than something should happen that's a bit more than what's really happening, you know. Um, and when I was talking to, to Matt, I was reminded of another incident I, I had in the, in the monastery when I um, was practicing on my own retreat. And I was sitting quite late one night, and I really felt that I had a lot of samadhi, I was very focused, and I really felt like I was on this kind of like edge. I was going to just about, I was just on this edge of having this massive breakthrough into emptiness. And I, f- I could feel myself being pulled into this void. You know, like, like, like I felt a sense of, uh, it was very compelling. Like I was just, the whole of my self-structure was going to dissolve in one kind of blowout. That's what it felt like. I was just like, wow, you know, and I just, you wouldn't just crash through. <laughs> oh. And then what came up was this incredible level of fear, actually terror, just like, I, oh, you know, and, um, and I just couldn't, I couldn't tolerate the fear. And so I, distract, I just knew I had to distract myself and, you know, go and find someone and read a book. And then the, the next day I was thinking, God, you know, I really got to this edge and I should have been able, I started to judge it, I should have just been able to crash through that. And, and I, what I'm going to do, and I made this whole strategy, I said, I'm going to go out. I, I was, I've always been, less so now if I've gotten older, but I always had a bit of an irrational fear of the dark. So I thought, no, I'm going to confront fear. And the fear and the self-structure very, very closely connected. I'm going to go out into the forest at night on my own and really feel this terror and crash through it because I know just on the other side of that it's going to be bliss. <laughs> you know, just, I can just get through this wall. So fortunately there was some little bit of wisdom operating in my mind. I thought well, maybe I should just check this out with my teacher, see if this is a cool strategy. So I went up to Ajahn Sumedho after the meal. I said, uh, Long Poor, you know, I've kind of practicing on my own, doing this retreat, and I'm kind of, I'm quite excited because I'm like at this edge and I'm just going to go and push, push it, you know, push through and it's all going to dissolve. It's going to be, you know, the first enlightened arahat from Southampton. (laughs) 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 
Bitten Park Secondary Modern School. <laughs> so anyway, he said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> I thought he'd say, yeah, great, you know, let's go out there and all guns blazing. He said, no, he said, you know, these things just fall away in their own time. These fears, you know, these deep places of holding, they, they, they're not something you can just push through with will. You know, you hit these edges, they might be quite subtle, in that case it was a stronger. He said, just, just practice and it will fall away, this fear, these things will fall away at their own time. You won't even know that they've fallen away, but you will realize one day they're not there anymore, the things that you were frightened about or the things that were challenging or the hindrances. Yeah. So I thought, I recognize, yeah, that's totally the right thing. <laughs> I was actually quite relieved. <laughs> I didn't have to go and sit in the forest all night. So. Uh, anyway, so, <clears throat> so the, but the <clears throat> this being again, this, this metta, another way that we've been practicing this, another way is this, this, this in the Zen they call it the uh, long enduring mind. It's not, it's not the heaviness but it's just the long picture in it all. It's just saying, yeah, you know, we just do our little bit and let it ripen. Because when we do it like that, it will be integrated. It won't be jagged. It won't be with this will, and then we control and hold, and then crash and burn. It will be perhaps slower and gentler, not lacking in profundity, but it will be like this image of the walking into the mist, the Buddha gave that image for the, for the ripening of the practice. You don't know what point you got wet, because it's subtle. Yeah. But you knew you started dry, and then at some point it changed. Yeah. Another um, important teaching around this theme that the Buddha gave was uh, which is still celebrated in the Buddhist calendar on the full moon of February um, called the Magga Puja. Um, and it celebrates a teaching that the Buddha called... There's three in the Theravada countries, there's three main celebrations of the Buddhist calendar. The Vesaka Puja, which is the main one, celebrating the Buddha and the the Asala Puja, which is in July, the full moon of July, which celebrates the, the turning of the Dhamma Chakra wheel, celebrates the Dhamma. And the Asala Puja in the full moon of February celebrates the Sangha. So this, um, this arose, this commemoration of this particular day arose at a time, according to the story, when the Buddha gathered together uh, spontaneously, 1,200 arahats, enlightened beings, gathered together to listen to the Buddha. Uh, under the full moon of February, they didn't get an email and say, you know, we're meeting at this time. They just knew, you know, this just gathered. So there, uh, you know, this is an assembly of realized, you know, they're pretty awakened beings. And, you know, you think, well, what does the Buddha teach an assembly? I don't know if it was 12,000 literally, but obviously it was a large gathering of his disciples. What does he teach? 
such a large assembly of enlightened beings, you know, what kind of subtle, esoteric, profound, high, high teaching that none of us could probably even grasp cognitively, never mind realize through insight. So this teaching is called the Awada Padimoka, the Padimoka or the Vinaya, which basically means the path to freedom, breaking up the causes for further rebirth. Buddha gave this very simple teaching and the first line that he started with was the phrase, patient endurance is the supreme austerity for overcoming that which obstructs, for overcoming unwholesome states. This, this, uh, this word, austerity, with the word that was used was tapas, which means has the connotation of burning away, that which uh, sticks, <laughs> almost. That, that actually the, the, the highest practice is, is this quality of what's called kanti paramita, the quality of a, of, a, of, a, of a... It's not the patience that's waiting for things to change, but as Ajahn Sumedha would talk about it, it's the patience of having all the time in the world to be with this, the suchness now. And if it's, an, if it's something that's arising, that we need to be with and practice with, then it's to be with that obstruction. And of course, the irony is as soon as we turn that attitude to Haseya we're all the time in the world to be with how it is, aching body, mind that's going off into restlessness, the dullness, whatever we're working with, ironically, it begins to already shift, usually. Or, or the plateaus, the places in practice where nothing much is happening and we're looking for the something. There can be these quite subtle places where we're looking for something to happen, some insight. You know, this, this subtle, there's a subtle tanha. It's so seductive, so convincing. It's like it's not enough. There must be something else. Enlightenment can't be that simple. There's got to be some pizzazz or some light or some something. And then the, you know, the, the Wadipadimoka goes on to basically talk about <clears throat> the, the pithy piece of it that's often quoted is that uh, uh, where the Buddha says to 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 um, um, to do that which is wholesome, or to lift up in the heart that which is wholesome, to let go of that which is unwholesome, uh, to purify and to purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So, if you wanted to put a succinct phraseology to, to the heart of Buddhism, that would probably be it, to, to, to practice that which is wholesome, to lift up in the heart, to make much of it, to let go of that which is unwholesome, to purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas.
Did I miss a line? I did, didn't I? I thought something was not quite right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you start with um, refrain from that which is unwholesome, lift up that which is wholesome, and purify the heart. Now this is the practice of purification, this uh, retreat that we've been practicing with applying the path, moments of path activity, and allowing the, the heart uh, to recognize the heart in its own nature. Uh, and this process, as that recognition, the moments of recognition, can begin to recognize that the heart can withstand, this heroic heart can withstand. It might sometimes feel very pathetic and go, oh, I can't take another second. <laughs> uh, but actually the heart is durable. That's why they call it the indestructible, the diamond heart. Like a diamond, it can cut, it can reflect. Uh, it, it is pristine in its clarity. Uh, it's indestructible. So when we have moments of it recognizing the indestructibility of the heart, the true nature of the heart and mind, then it can lend courage to the practice, fearlessness, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of fear. One of the great uh, saints, <clears throat> back in the mists of time, one of the teachers of one of the great Buddhist realizers, Nagarjuna, uh, his teacher, Sahara, I mean, no one quite knows who these guys were actually, but they're great yogis and Buddhist practitioners. Um, Sahara, who was one of these great realizers, put it like this, which I, I really like in terms of as we begin to understand how obstruction and suffering is that which quickens rather than is just a total drag. It is actually you know, the most uh, precise teacher brings us exactly what's needed for our cultivation, whether it's subtle, uh, heart that's just discontent, or whether it's really difficult, a body that's just aching and painful, that this, this is, challenges us. And Sahara said that, uh, you know, While suffering increases, bliss increases. The greater the mental afflictions, the mightier the primordial wisdom, the larger the pile of wood, the greater the blaze. All appearances that present themselves to you are like flames spreading in a forest, behave in accordance with the root of the mind, which is emptiness. This is happiness indeed. And not to, as we practice, and whatever we're faced with, to to realize that the um, as the heart and its strength and its clarity and its awareness, as we begin to trust that deeper as a refuge, which is really, in many ways, what this practice is moving us towards that that shift from being in the circumference of the stuff that's keeps moving us around into the heart, literally coming back to the heart, that which is just present, into the the core of the wheel, so we're not just spinning, 
coming back to this heart, to this listening, to this knowing, to this quality of presence, and then getting a sense for the strength of the heart, not necessarily you know, the, the reliability of the body or the mental state or the feelings, then we can recognize that even with, when there is suffering, there is the potential this challenging at first, or when there's obstruction, or when there's difficulty. But in that challenge, you know, it, in that whatever circumstance we face in life, when we begin to know we have the, we're equipped. We can be equipped to face that through this contemplative practice, this contemplative process. Then it gives us the opportunity to really, to really develop, to really. Uh, to recognize, as this quote says, that suffering, the, 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 the greater the pile of wood, the greater the blaze of awakening. <laughs> we, in a way, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 helps, it helps the heart purify. It's not a mistake, it's not a drag, it's not something gone wrong. Something we can really work, whatever the circumstance. So like that old lady that I was sitting with that, not that day, you know, it's, that must be one of the most difficult things to bear, actually, to come to the end, towards the end of your life and to land up abandoned, comfortable physically, all the physical needs taken care of, but having really not lived a life of practice. You know, not knowing how to return the suffering back, uh, to meet it in the heart, and not knowing how to use that suffering to contemplate it so as to be able to transcend it, and to, in that transcendence, to recognize the pure brightness of the heart, the heart that isn't identified. It's not insensitive to, it's not uncompassionate, it's not res- unresonant with, it's not loving, but it isn't identified with however the body is, whatever the age is, whatever the circumstance is, it's able to patiently endure uh, for the sake of this practice, for the sake of this illumination, for the sake of this freedom that this practice, this difficult practice is leading us into, this innate freedom of the heart, recognizing the innate freedom of the heart, here and now. So I'd like to finish this evening's reflection with another quote, which is one of my favorites, from Dilgo Kense, great Tibetan master. Maintain the state of simplicity. If you encounter happiness, success, prosperity, or other favorable circumstances, consider them as dreams, illusions, and do not get attached to them. If you are stricken by illness, deprivation, or other physical and mental trials, do not let yourself be discouraged but rekindle your compassion and generate the wish that through your suffering, the suffering of others may be exhausted. Whatever circumstance, do not plunge either into elation or misery, but stay free and comfortable in the unshakable heart of equanimity.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.